I want you to envision rest. And what does that look like for you? Maybe you start thinking of the old, uh, the old bubble bath commercial, Calgon, take me away. Maybe it's a sandy beach. Maybe it's just your kids being quiet for an hour. What does rest look like for you? I put this quote up from one of my favorite characters, Inigo Montoya from the movie The Princess Bride. I'm not saying I recommend it to anyone. I'm just saying I enjoy the movie. And in the movie, Inigo says to a friend of his in the movie, Vizzini, who continually uses the word inconceivable over and over and over again. And finally, Inigo says, I don't think it means what you think it means. We've talked about that before. We've talked about that in the idea of love. We've talked about it, the idea of church. We've talked about it when we discussed the difference between purpose and function and how is the church, the body of Christ, the bride, that when we take the functions of the church and we put them up to the top as the purpose, things like mission, that things get a little wonky, they get a little crazy. We talked about the idea of fasting. John the Baptist's disciples went to Jesus a few chapters back And they said, why is it that we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus spoke to that from Isaiah 58. The idea of fasting from Old Testament scripture had nothing to do with abstaining from food. It had to do with breaking the chains, the bondage of sin, setting captives free. We talked about it just a couple of weeks ago, the word praise. Oftentimes people throw that word around in text messages and you can say, well, I'm in my car all by myself, praise Jesus. And you can't do that. You can't praise because as we said, praise is always public and it's always vocal. You can worship, you can give thanks, you can sing, you can do a lot of things, but you can't praise apart from it being public and it being vocal. I don't think it means what you think it means. And so today, when we come to the second part of Matthew chapter 11, our focal text is Matthew eleven twenty-eight, and this idea of rest. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are exhausted. That means someone who's been working, laboring very, very hard. It's not kind of the millennial who's been sitting there on the sofa playing video games and saying, Mom, I can't believe you didn't bring me another Mountain Dew. I'm exhausted. It's not what it means. It means to be toiling in labor, manual labor, working very hard, and overburdened. See, the people, the Jews of Jesus' day were overburdened by all of the laws and the rules and the regulations that the Pharisees had laid on them, the teachers of the law. And everything that they did, you could never really come up on par. You always fell short. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are exhausted 
and overburden, and I will give you rest. And I mention that because today, in our minds, I think rest is a very different picture. As I asked you to do at the very beginning, to close your eyes and envision what rest looks like for you. And I think oftentimes, for many of us, it may not be you specifically, but many of us, the idea has to do with getting away. Getting away from something, getting away from my employer, getting away from my employees, getting away from my family, from my in-laws, from my children, getting away from my job, from my chores, from school, from homework. Rest. Getting away. And the problem is, is that if we take that idea of rest and we interject it here in Matthew's gospel, we're going to miss it. I don't know if you know this or not. I had to do a little bit of research. But worldwide, worldwide, we spend about $800 billion a year on leisurely travel. $800 billion. I was reading an article in Psychology Today, not recommending Psychology Today. I'm just telling you that I read something. And in Psychology Today, one of the statistics that a man wrote that said, what could you do with $800 billion? He said that you could wipe out 85 to 90% of all outstanding credit card debt in the world. Think about that. 85 to 90% of all outstanding credit card debt rest. See, the problem with our idea of rest, though, is what it really leads to on the back end. We get loaded up with all this stress, right? We have to plan the vacation. We have to budget the vacation. If you're going somewhere for a period of time and maybe you've got elderly parents, maybe you've got farm animals or pets, you've got to find a responsible person to help take care of those things. Find someone to take care of the house or the farm to check the mail. And then the problem with vacations is is that the world doesn't really stop, right? The world doesn't really stop when you go on vacation. Is that you can think that you're putting things on pause, but what it's really doing is just causing things to back up. And then when you get home, as the slide up there shows, is that everybody wants you to catch up on everything right then and there. Our idea of rest typically leads to more stress. So then we end up needing a vacation from our vacation. How does that work? Well, last week, we looked at the beginning of Matthew 11, and I'd ask you if you have a Bible with you to turn there. And at the beginning of Matthew 11 we find out that Jesus is continuing to advance the gospel. He just got done with the pep talk that we talked about in chapter 10, where Jesus said, hey guys, disciples whom I've called, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves, right? And all of the disciples said, yes, I've always wanted to go out just like a sheep among wolves. That's exactly what I wanted that you're going to be flogged, that you're going to be handed over to authorities, that you're going to be betrayed by family members and friends and people you thought you could trust. You're going to be betrayed. Not just betrayed to the point of inconvenience, but betrayed to the point of death. 
that's what you should expect. You're going to be hated. But Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end, that's the one who will be saved. And so Jesus is sending out these disciples with this in mind. John the Baptist is sitting in prison for standing up to Herod, wanting to marry his brother's wife, telling him it was wrong, gets thrown in prison. And in 11, it says, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, what was the Christ doing? He was ignoring John because he was about the mission of the gospel, about the Father's will. John sent a message through his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And that word, like I mentioned last week, heteron from the Greek, has to do with qualitatively a different category. Jesus, you're not living up to my expectation. You're not doing, I, I know that you, you did this miraculous thing over there for that person, but you haven't done it for me. You've left me in prison and I'm probably going to go to my death. And that's what ended up happening to John. But before that, Jesus responded in verse four of 11, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. That's what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus is still about today. The gospel, the good news, that he's the king. I want you to fast forward in your Bibles to 11.25. Matthew 11.25, it reads, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, and earth, because you have hidden these things, and I want you to underline, circle, highlight these things. You've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. And our question should be what are these things? We're going to talk about in our table discussion time after service. It's kind of our poetry uh, version of Sunday school. We get together after the service and we dialogue and talk together about God's word. And the Bible tells us to do that. And so that's why we do it. But these things, what are these things? And so I want to offer up some stuff for you to crunch around, to think about, to ponder, to pray on. And I'm going to tell you some things that what Jesus is talking about is the first one is that there's no rest because that's where he's going with this message. There's no rest amid worry and doubt. When you think about John the Baptist, when he begins to question whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah, the one that when John stood there on the banks of the Jordan and he looked out, and he saw Jesus up there and he said to everyone, praising God because it was public and it was vocal, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. There was no doubt in his mind at that point. There was no doubt in his mind when he stood up to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when he called them a brood of vipers, no doubt. 
But see, when circumstances changed and he wasn't the rock star anymore and he'd been thrown in prison, the doubt and the worry flooded in and he asked a question. Hey guys, can you go and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one that all of Hebrew scripture, we call it the Old Testament, testified about? The one in Genesis that says that he's going to crush the head of the serpent, the descendant of Eve. The one that at the end of Genesis in 49.10 says that he's the Shiloh, he's the Messiah, that he's the one to whom all tribute and authority belong. That's God. All tribute and authority doesn't belong to anyone else. Are you the one that the priesthood foreshadowed? Are you the one that the exodus out of Egypt and slavery is, are you the one that that foreshadowed that we would not just have deliverance from Pharaoh, but we would have deliverance from bondage and sin for all eternity? Are you the one? See, because I'm sitting here rather inconvenienced in this cold, dank cell, and because you're not performing up to my expectation, Jesus, I don't think I'm going to go to church anymore. I think I'm going to withhold my tithe. You didn't answer my prayer about my son, or about my marriage, or about my daughter, or about my addiction, and since you didn't perform when I put my money in the cosmic vending machine, you know what? Why should I go? Why should I worship you? And the reason why we worship folks is really quite simple. It's not because of what Jesus has done for us. It's because of who he is. Has he done amazing things? Yes, and we are overwhelmed by his grace and his goodness. That as Messiah, that he would choose to go to a cross and to die for us in our place. But see, there's no rest amid worry and doubt. In chapter 11, you can back up just a little bit. After Jesus gets done talking to John's disciples and telling the crowd that John truly was a rock star, and he said in verse 13, for all the prophets and all the, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah. He is my predecessor. He's the one that called out and said, make straight the paths. And Jesus said, let anyone who has ears listen. And then Jesus, after saying that, because people even like John the Baptist don't want to believe it. So Jesus says in verse 16, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace, who call out to other children. I want you to think of bullies. Okay, just hold on to that idea. Children who are bullies who pick on other kids. And they say, hey kids, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament or a dirge for you, but you didn't mourn. See, no matter what you do, it's going to be wrong. And that's what Jesus is saying that this generation... And I don't know that it's any different from our generation, this age, this people, that if I don't do what you're expecting me to do, because you're so fickle, we are. I'm including myself. I'm not preaching, pointing the finger at you. We're fickle. 
And see, Jesus says that John came and did all this kind of stuff, and you said, and then Jesus came and did things on the opposite end of the spectrum, and people said, we're not going to believe him, and we're not going to believe you. It's because we're fickle, right? Because God didn't bother to check with us about our opinion, about what kind of Messiah he should be. When God doesn't check with us, when God doesn't ask us for our expert advice from the sidelines of eternity, you ever watch somebody who's a sports expert? Someone who's watching a Cowboys game or a basketball game. Oh, after, after they blow a play. Oh, yeah, they, they should have done this. I, I would have called that play. And we laugh, but that's what we do. It's like inherent in our DNA. And we do the same thing in churches. You know, I, I really think the pastor should have checked with me on that call. And your experience in pastoring a church is how much? And we laugh, but God tells us that what he wants from us, more than sacrifice, more than our understanding, is he wants our obedience. He didn't sit down and explain to Abraham, hey, Abraham, here's the thing. Here's the thing is that what I want you to do is I want you to take your son and I want you to drive a dagger in his heart. And the reason why I'm going to do that, you know, is because I want to test you and I'm not really going to do it. He didn't say all that. He said, take your son, bring him up there, have all the stuff that's ready for a sacrifice and do it. And if God said the same thing to us today, how would you respond? God doesn't really mean that. He's not really calling me to advance the gospel. He's not really calling me to Africa or to China where people have never heard. He's not really calling me. He's not really calling me. See, because I got other things. I got college. I, I got a marriage. Take your family. People do. But we write ourselves out of the script because we're experts. And we've got our opinions about everything. And it turns out that there's no rest when you're someone's life that's filled with criticism and opinions and gossip. If you go through and you read in the book of Galatians chapter 5 and Paul talks about the acts of the flesh, you should read through that sometime and ask yourself, do I look more like the person who's acting in the flesh? Or do I look more like the person who's under the power producing the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or am I more the person who's prone to anger and outbursts? Am I more prone to gossip? But I don't really tell anyone it's gossip. See, because I've become so good at it, it really just looks like a, a, a fishing expedition. You just ask an innocent question and then you wait for the person to respond. And depending on how they respond, do you know that that's exactly what the serpent did in the garden? Oh, that's not gossip though. Okay. See, there's no rest in criticism and gossip. There's no rest apart from repentance. Jesus goes on. Verse 20, it says he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not 
do what? Because they didn't do what, folks? They didn't repent. And remember, repentance isn't just about feeling sorry. It's not about getting emotional. Repentance is a literal turning away from sin. I've shared it with these kids over and over again. Hey, kids, are you listening? What is repentance? Turning from your sin party. See, because we love our sin parties, right? We're over here and we're, oh, oh I'm, I'm involved with my life and my stuff and me, my, mine and I. And there's no way that we can worship God when our back is to him and we're stuck in our sin party. And so what we have to do is we literally have to turn. That's what repent means. It doesn't mean cry. It doesn't mean get emotional. It doesn't mean to feel bad or to feel sorry. It means to turn. It means to stop doing it. If you have kids, maybe even teenagers, and they say, Dad, Mom, I'm sorry I did that. You know how you can tell if they're really sorry? Do they stop doing it? Or tomorrow, is it the exact same thing again? And if you don't see repentant behavior when it comes to things that we can see, then it's probably not legitimate regarding their relationship with Christ. And that doesn't just apply to teenagers, folks. See, there's no rest apart from repentance. Jesus pronounces the woes over the unrepentant cities. I want us to look forward to Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus says to the Father as he's praying, all things have been entrusted to me. And that word in the Greek for entrusted is kind of like when a mom or a dad gives the keys to the brand new vehicle to their teenage kid. Here you go. I'm entrusting this to you. And unlike teenage kids like Kevin, when my folks gave the keys to me and I went out and I wrecked not one, not two, but three vehicles, Jesus didn't wreck anything. When the father turned the keys over to Jesus, he entrusted them to him. And as the eternal son, Jesus did everything that was expected. All things have been entrusted to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. That word know, it doesn't just mean to have information about, right? It doesn't just mean that you sit down and you Google Jesus or what it means to be a Christian and you read it and you're like, oh, that's what it is to be a Christian. I guess I'll be one of those. No repentance, no transformation, no regeneration, no being born again by the Spirit. It means an intimate knowledge. At the beginning of this year, we went through a series in Proverbs and we looked, we spent several weeks in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the genesis. It's the beginning of intimacy. Not just knowledge, not just up here, not just knowing something, but it being an intimate knowledge. To know something backwards and forwards to experience it. Wisdom, which is life skill and correction. But what do fools do? 
What do fools do? They despise, they reject intimacy with God. They reject wisdom, life skill that comes from God's word and his revelation. And they despise correction that oftentimes come, comes from God, but it also comes through his church. And the reason why I mention that is because if we don't understand what it is that Jesus is praying and the context, when we get to the point when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are exhausted and overburdened, and I will give you rest. If we don't understand the context, then we fill in the blank with our own picture. Jesus wants me to go to Disney. Jesus wants me to take a vacation and go to the Bahamas or the Caribbean. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Going back a little over a year ago, we did a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 10.15, as we were wrapping up the series, we came to this verse. And I didn't understand it when I first started studying it, but it said, The toil of fools wearies them, for they don't know how to get to the city. See, in the city where the gate was, that that's where all of the commerce, all of the legal transactions, that's where everything happens. Wisdom tells us that's, that, that's where she stands in Proverbs, right? She stands at the city gates calling out, hey, you fools, I'm over here. I'm wisdom. And if you listen to me, then you'll get your life on the right track. But what do fools do? It's not even that they just don't listen. They don't even know how to get to the city. We've talked about what rest isn't. There's no rest when we're worried and we're doubting. There's no rest when we're critics, when we're gossips. There's no rest... There's no rest for us apart from repentance. But what is rest? We're going to start off saying rest is intimacy with God. If you don't know him, you can't truly rest. Let's look at verse 27 again. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And here we are and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. We're going to talk about this a little bit in our table fellowship. The idea that, does God hide things from us on purpose? Like a vindictive parent? I'm going to hide something from you as my kid. I'm going to hide your car keys so that you can't go out. I'm going to hide your favorite shirt or your favorite shoes and then I'm going to laugh about it. See, there are people who may leave here today thinking that, well, the Bible says that God hides things from us, that he chooses to hide things from certain people. Well, what, what if I'm one of them? What if I'm one of those people who's wise and learned? So does that mean that I shouldn't go to college? Does it mean that I shouldn't try to use prudence in my life, that God's going to hide things from me? No, it means worldly wisdom. It means that when you walk around and you think you got it all figured out, when it's worldly wisdom and, and you're learning 
just like that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you take from that apart from your relationship with God, and you think that you can get somewhere apart from the Almighty, that's sin. Because Paul said that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Rest comes in intimacy with God. It comes from intimacy with God, specifically in Christ. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me after saying all of these things in the context of sending out his disciples like sheep among wolves, John the Baptist being in prison and doubting about the unresponsive generation, about woes over cities that failed to repent, about intimacy with the Father. And then he says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are exhausted from your labors and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Rest is only found in Christ. And then the last part, rest is only found in gospel community. I've preached on this, I've taught it, I've written about it, I've blogged about it. I've done everything that I can possibly do in every form of communication I can think of to let people know that personal salvation is not the top of the mountain. So if you think that it's like, I've been saved, I know Jesus, I'm good, so now I can do whatever it is that I want with my life. And from time to time, I may drop in, I may grace somebody with my presence. That's not the case. Is that there is no rest apart from gospel community. That's the way that God has ordained it. When you read the book of Acts, it's never talking about individuals. It's talking about the advancement of the gospel through people who are regenerate in and through Christ, the risen king advancing gospel, just like Peter, just like Paul. You go into Acts and it tells you in Acts chapter 2 that those who were born again after they heard Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost, what happened? They were changed. They were touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it tells us that they devoted themselves. Do you know what that word devoted means? It means that you don't turn back. It means that when we take a, a vow to be married to someone, is that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you're in it for the long haul. Don't take that as a slam on anyone here who's divorced because that's not where I'm going. You're missing the point. You're in it for the long haul. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer and the breaking of bread. Are you devoted to gospel community? Or is it just something that you do when it's convenient? As long as a pastor doesn't step on your toes and as long as you like the music... Or are you devoted? Are you devoted to gospel community? See, because that's where Jesus says our rest comes from. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke. Do you know what a yoke is? Those of you who have worked on farms, I never have. But I, look at, I, I can look it up and I can see it. I don't have an intimate knowledge. I've never been yoked physically. 
I've never actually physically yoked an animal. But when you look at it, more often than not, yokes that there's two, there's two holes for two animals. And so what Jesus is saying, that if you'll be yoked to me, see, it's not that you get out of doing any work. It's not that you get to go your own way and do whatever it is that you feel like you're doing because I'm Jesus and I'm advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth and this is where I'm going and if this is where I'm going and you're yoked to me, where do you think you're going to go? And is that where you're going? Is that where your life is going? Are you truly yoked to Jesus within the context of gospel community. Take my yoke and learn from me. Learn from me. He called his disciples not to personal salvation. Is that a byproduct of the call of the gospel? Absolutely it is. But that's not the focus. Jesus called his disciples to follow him. And if you're not following, then what's the litmus test of your salvation? What is it? Is it you prayed a magical prayer? Is it you got dunked in some magical waters? That you did a religious ceremony? Or is it that you're following Jesus? That you're yoked to him and you're going wherever he goes? Take my yoke, learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. Some translations read that as I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you find yourself in a place in life where you don't think that you're really resting and you feel like you're frazzled, I wonder, I wonder, are you truly yoked to Jesus? Are you finding your rest in him? Are you finding your rest in him? Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for all of the good things that you do for us, not because you have to, but because you're God. And you, Jesus, are worthy of all glory and honor and worship and praise. This morning, during this time of invitation, I just, I just ask you to respond, whatever it is that God is calling you to do.